Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvroski. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, Jenna Mennert Baker joins the show to talk about how she brings impact not only one-on-one, but also through social change. We also talk about how we bring psychological safety, trust, emotional intelligence, and mental health to macho men in macho industries. So this one is really important, and it's also near and dear to my heart. So definitely check it out and let us know if you enjoy it as much as we did recording it. If you haven't yet, go to EliteHighPerformance.com and check out all the new stuff that we are offering. We're offering some new programs and services around leadership, around psychological safety, around burnout prevention around certifications, and much more. We are stepping up our game to serve you, so it's time for you to step up for yourself. So go over to EliteHighPerformance.com, check that stuff out, and definitely feel free to reach out to either Susan or myself if you have any questions or you want to explore what we can do for you. Lastly, if you haven't yet, please go over to your favorite podcast platform, wherever you're listening to this from, hit subscribe. And if you can, share this one with a leader or a friend or a macho man who's in your life because it's definitely about opening up the conversations and helping each other become our best leadership selves. We'd really appreciate it if you did that. Thank you. And here's the interview with Jenna Menner Baker. We are back. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski and wearing a heart-shaped necklace, not in a heart-shaped box, but just in a necklace form, Susan Hobson. (laughs) Susan, how are you? Oh my God, I love my Nirvana references. <laughs> oh, I got to wear the heart as a heart-centric leader. It's like my little anchor for that today. What do you think? I like it. It's and awesome. it, Yeah, it's it's good. And it's funny, right? I, I was just looking and it's World Gratitude Day. So it's it's another thing to just think about. That's uh, also why I wore the heart for my, my people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so grateful for you guys. Exactly. And I want to like, obviously, we start off this this show with a quote, but we'll give you another statistic. And this one will be in line with what we're going to talk with Jenna. And so an article came out in Forbes, which was talking about leadership and about how leadership has the responsibility to change norms in the workplace. And their statistic was that 94% of men experience masculine anxiety. So thinking and feeling that they're not being manly enough or that they need to be more manly or changing that type of attitude. And so, you know, obviously, like in my background coming from, you know, mining and oil and gas, I see that a lot with not only the fact that like men are the vast majority of the people there, but also like if you go out to the shop floor, it's very much about macho men doing you know macho things <laughs> i'm beating my chest everyone out there <laughs> That's right. and so with that we'll, we'll introduce our special guest today jenna menert baker and jenna she has come from an extensive history with working with not only like in politics but also in police departments so we're going to dive into a little bit about macho men but first off jenna how are you i'm great how are you guys today Good. We're, we're awesome. And, and it's it's incredible to have you. And Jenna, for people out there, like, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And like, how did you get started on your leadership journey? I got started on my leadership journey when I was 10. My mom wrote her doctoral dissertation on assertive training for women when I was little. And so at 10, I started writing letters related to the Equal Rights Amendment. So I very much have been an activist or systemic change agent for as long, by my mother's design largely, but for as long as I can remember. And so I went to graduate school for macro social work, so for systemic change, 
really because I felt like you have to be willing, you have to be really comfortable with change to advocate for change. And you have to be willing to take a lot of crap. And I happen to have four brothers and no sisters. And I've Half of my front tooth is fake and a big scour inside my mouth because I was not treated like a princess. And so I got started on my leadership journey because I figured I really didn't. I figured that you have to be willing to step up. And I've always been willing to step up. And how did that lead you into like police departments and mental health work? So I started my career focused actually on the population of girls who are sexually victimized in the, and end up in the child welfare system and end up bootstrapped into the adult, into the juvenile justice system and then the adult system. So I first entered, I started my career as a child welfare worker, but then I worked for Mayor Julie in the Office of the Criminal Justice Coordinator. And then the Ma- Mayor Williams in DC as the chief staff for the Deputy Mayor for Public Safety and Justice. And and then for Governor Rendell in, in a similar policy role. But really the 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 moment that has always stuck with me related to policing and men and masculinity and is when I worked for Giuliani, I was the deputy director of the Police Community Relations Task Force that was formed after Abner Louima, who was a Haitian immigrant, uh, was beaten and, and sodomized by three New York City police officers in a case of mistaken identity. Not that that would make any of what happened okay. But what I was able to do at 29 was to be the only social worker in a room full of cops at one police plaza. And so they brought in different officers. And there was a, a gentleman who was pretty young who was talking about his wife had just had their first baby. He was the first responder on a scene where five children under the age of four had all had their throats slit. Um, and he walked outside, threw up, started crying. And he shared with us that his sergeant showed up and said, you either suck it up or I'm taking your badge or your, and your gun. And so like this expectation we have that first responders are supposed to be stoic and almost robotic is is so damaging to them. And we can see that now there's great groups like Blue Help, which work to prevent officer suicide. Police, the, the officer suicide rate continues to increase. And, you know, police officers have, on average, 19 years less that they live than other than their similarly situated peers. So that moment where, you know, I heard this emotion and the response that he received. And once again, I was I was young. I was there to write a report and take minutes, but that never left me also realizing that I view the world through the lens of having four brothers. And so I kind of worked other roles that always related to law enforcement, like children's advocacy centers around how kids how sexual abuse is investigated. But then for seven and a half years, I ran the uh, National Alliance of Mental Illness for the state of Maine, which is the training partner and the program coordinator for what's called CIT, Crisis Intervention Team Training, or the Crisis Intervention Team Model. And CIT is one of the best known community policing models. So in doing that, you can't, you know, expect officers to respond better to people with mental illness or in a mental health crisis, which is what CIT is all about, if we just ignore officers' own mental health. It's just such a, yeah, I mean, we just can't. Mm -hmm. It's incongruent, as we like to say. Right. Absolutely. We are dehumanizing officers and expecting them to to respond with the most compassionate, empathetic, problem solving, critical thought way possible when that is not what they um, kind of the framework that is applied to them. And, and I mean, it makes sense from the log- like the research perspective, right, is like if you read Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman, they talk about like self-awareness. And all that stuff has to come first before for yourself before you can apply it to others and then even get to like relational intelligence, which is like, quote unquote, leadership of others. So I think like, I mean, first, it makes a ton of sense, but then we can also get into the PTSD stuff separately. But but Jenna, like one thing that we talked before, and like you were in the psychological safety fearless organization as training in a different cohort than me, but why did you think that psychological safety is the way to get in with these people? Well, I'm in, I went through the certification as I was kind of evolving my dissertation uh, and my research tools out in the world. But as I was reading research about law enforcement from the beginning of sort of the creation of law enforcement and what were the challenges and how does this fit into as 
as we think about modern day police reform, how does all this inform that? Because demonization of individual officers, and obviously there are officers who commit crimes and should be charged and held accountable. But there's this, if they're, you know, that whole ACAB and no matter who the, who the person is, because they are a cop, that makes them bad. And that's just so incredibly problematic. And so kind of unpacking the research related to that, one of the things that really hit me was the fact that there was a study that looked at officers in the United Kingdom, what was their greatest stressor? And they listed, you know, the calls they responded to, especially things involving small children, rape victims, domestic violence. Those were the most traumatic for them. The same researchers evaluated that issue in the United States. And those officers said the way that their departments treat them is mm. the most traumatic part of their job. Wow. And so as we think as a nation about what, how do we improve policing, because we need policing, but how do we improve that and, and minimize negative outcomes to BIPOC communities and really ensure that officers are using critical thinking skills, we have to start with, well, what are the barriers to that? And when you mm -hmm. have a paramilitary organization that dehumanizes officers, and I'm not saying all police departments do, but I'm talking about kind of what the research says when you look across police departments. And, and so that, I was as I was unpacking that, kind of the concept of psychological safety and Dr. Amy Edmondson's work kind of came into, into the picture and realized that, that there have been a lot of evaluations about the role of organizational justice and procedural fairness within police departments and the impact that has on officers' wellness, as well as officers' willingness to engage in organizational citizenship behaviors. But nobody's looked at all of that through the lens of officer psychological safety. What a freaking blind spot. Yeah. Well, I think psychological safety is unfortunately too much of a of a blind spot for a lot of folks. I think Why? it is one of the greatest challenges because I've spent most of my career, well, all of my career in either politically mm -hmm. appointed positions or or in nonprofits. And, and most of that time has been in running nonprofits. And mm -hmm. psychological safety is just not in that vocabulary anywhere in that space. Why? Why do we minimize that? Why is that still a blind spot in 2021? Let's unpack just, that for a second. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I'm going to use, and, and I talked to Rob about this a little bit, the agency that I was running before I stopped working so I could finish my, my comprehensive exams and all that, you know, I walked into an agency that had uh, really profound challenges, staff arrests for embezzlement, all kinds of, just all kinds of challenges. And I took a results-based accountability kind of view because the board asked me to and started really increasing funding, increased the budget by a million dollars doubled the space we had, which we owned, moved into a building that was much nicer. All Every kind of dot was, every goal on the list was checked. And it still was this amazingly stressful, overwhelming place for me that didn't feel good to go to work. And that was mm -hmm. the first time in my life, even though I was the CEO, it didn't feel good to go to work. And I'm like, mm -hmm. and I'm all passion driven. I'm, I'm, you know, I do what I do because I love to help people and to build better systems. And in that world, I didn't, we had 11% of a $3 million budget was, was focused on admin. That meant me and one other person. So things like psychological safety, when I went through my cohort, there was one other nonprofit person and he works at a nonprofit that builds like water systems in foreign countries, not in a you know mental health oriented you know state nonprofit. Even that, I mean, that entity that I ran had a $3 million budget, but that's nothing compared to, you know, and the folks on my thing were from like Volkswagen and you know, fancy consulting companies in foreign countries. And, and I was the only sort of grassroots nonprofit person there. And I think mm -hmm. that's the challenge. That's one of my big goals is how do we get this information to places that don't have HR departments, that mm -hmm. don't have teams they send to certifications like that, mm -hmm. that are trying to make sure they follow all the laws. And that's about the best they have the capacity to do. Yeah, I think some of the resistance that I see on the corporate side of things looks very similar, right? It's just they're under-resourced where it comes to the development of their people. Yeah. We massively minimize that across all boards and channels, it sounds like, from what you're saying. Yeah, I completely agree. I think we think people show up and should do their job and not think about the culture. When I say psychological safety, especially when I say it, to law enforcement, because I, I am on the CIT International Board, and we just had a very large conference. And when I talk about the design of my research and my survey tool, and I say psychological safety, they're like, oh, what, everybody just needs to feel feel all huggy and lovey at work? And I'm like, no, no, no. Right. Not, the wrong associations with what it actually is. And, and taking back to what that research said, comparing you, 
officers in the United Kingdom compared to officers in the United States, when they say it's their department that's most stressful, that means they need psychological safety at work and they're not experiencing it. That's right. But that vocabulary just isn't isn't there. And that's what I love about the fearless yeah. organization, the book, because it kind of walks through the research from a medical perspective of why raising your voice, having inclusive environments is so critical. And it mm-hmm. helps break that down that we're just all supposed to hug and, you know, sing Kumbaya or something. Which is in direct contrast <laughs> or conflict with what we systemically, from a social standpoint, are taught to believe masculinity is all about, right? And like performance is all about and business is all about. And I think that's what we're up against, right? Are these very archaic, limited beliefs about what this actually is all about. Yeah. And I think it's important to go to that topic. I mean, there's the psychological safety, not understanding, but then there's the whole whole school of thought that are really how we do poorly for men in our society. I don't know if you've ever seen the website mantherapy.com. It is awesome and it is hilarious. And man therapy is really designed to meet men where they're at and get them talking about mental health. But there's a big role in that for the women in in men's lives, because especially straight men, if their partner doesn't create an environment where they are safe to share that they're struggling or they feel sad, then they just turn that inward. And, you know, the largest, the population that is is at the greatest risk of suicide in many states and and is white, straight, middle-aged men, because they don't have outlets that make it, especially those who work in more traditionally masculine occupations, don't have a place where it's okay to say, I'm just really sad. Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with depression. You know, the, the greatest cost to the worldwide economy in terms of missed labor days is depression. It's not back pain. It's not cancer. It's depression. Mm-hmm. And until we talk about that, and until we allow men to have the space to have struggles, to have men, to even have mental health, let alone to struggle with it, Right. We are doing hugely damaging things to our fathers, our brothers, our spouses, our friends. And I, I really do get frustrated when people throw out toxic masculinity. And, you know, sure, we have a culture that expects that men are that way. But that culture isn't because men created it. It's because mm-hmm. it's, what, it's what society says. And so I am I completely support guys who want to be rough and tough and you know, carry a gun or whatever that means for them, whether they work in a mill or, or they build ships or whatever, or they're a cop or fireman, that the concept is every person should be allowed to have the space to struggle and to have someone who says, you know, I hear what you're going through. One of the things that I was really happy that I was able to create the agency I ran was peer-to-peer support for first responders Mm -hmm. so that they could call a trained peer. We had their phone numbers listed Another person, another cop who'd gone through on kind of mental health and the impact of trauma and say, hey, I'm really struggling today. Can, can we talk and have a spa- safe space for them? Because we need to create more safe spaces for, for men, especially men who hold a more traditional definition of masculinity. Mm-hmm. So, so like, I mean, obviously, I'm way on board with this. And yeah. as someone who does struggle with their own mental health, but now talks about it a lot, like I'm totally on with this. But I guess the question is, and I, and I get this question a lot, but it's like, how do we introduce like psychological safety to men? Like it sounds like, and like sometimes you get this pushback is like, well, I'll just talk when I feel like it or I'll talk about what I want to or I don't want a small talk. And it's like, like how do we how do we start introducing these macho cultures to something that needs some aspect of vulnerability? Well, I think it's about the value of it, right? So if we if I say to officers who feel demoralized by sort of the paramilitary approach that some leadership takes in terms of not being at all open to ideas or change, say so do you feel hurt at work? Do you feel like your workplace hears you. Do you feel like if you have an idea, they're willing to at least hear it? Because I think that's the most fundamental thing for all of us. If we think we've got the most brilliant idea, and I remember I had a supervisor who I adored, his name was Fred Patrick in, in New York City, and I would come in and I was like, I, and when I worked in the mayor's office, I have this great idea. And he would say, okay, tell me about it, Jenna, why is it so great? And I'd go through it and he'd listen the whole time as I enthusiastically described what I thought was some brilliant concept. And then at the end, he'd say, okay, 
well, let me talk, let's talk about what I see as some challenges to that. And they'd be like, well, Jenna, that's actually illegal. Or Jenna, that would probably cost $5 million. Or he'd be like, you know what, Jenna? I think we could do this and this and work towards that. But it was the being heard. I always said, you know, I started my career. The first thing I ever wanted was I just wanted to be heard. Wherever I worked, I was willing to do what I needed to do to fulfill the obligations of my role. But just let, if I have an idea, just let me be heard. So I think when we talk about this population of men, I think we just approaching it is, don't you want to be heard? Like, don't you want a workplace that hears you? And absolutely, there's vulnerability and showing up and being present and sharing. But a lot of that vulnerability, the barriers to that will be lessened if they feel like they're going to be heard, right? Mm -hmm. But why risk your sort of reputation, sort of, you know, male status, if you're not even going to be heard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's it's so true, right? And it's, I mean, being heard, I think is it's a need. And there's like, if you look at the pillars of engagement, one of them is literally like being listened to and having your your manager do something about the ideas that you bring. But it, it's funny, right? Like being heard changes. I think it changes someone. Like I would say that. I mean, it's weird to say this, but I think Susan was the first person to really hear me. And like I had gone to therapists and stuff before, but I never felt like I was like, they never got me, I think. And I think that that's a thing where, and and you're on the right track with like pairing people with similar experiences together to support each other, right? It's like, otherwise there's no rapport and they don't get it. And like, I've had a psychiatrist say to me, Rob, like, you're not depressed enough because you can get out of bed and go to work, (sighs) right? And it's like, well, you don't understand who I am. (laughs) Well, I think you touched on a really important point, Rob. And and I I spent six years running a state chapter of the National Association of Social Workers. So I had 6,500 members that were all clinicians across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And I always say, Someone's great therapist is not necessarily a great therapist for somebody else. And I've had plenty of therapists in my life. And I was like, this is a waste of my time. Right. And then I found one who was, I walked in and I'm like, you know, I run a nonprofit. I run a mental health nonprofit. I have a master's, you know, da, 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 my parents. Da, da. And I said, so do you think you can handle me? And she looked at me and said, no, get the fuck out of my office. And I busted out laughing and I, and she's the best therapist. I So now she just texted me. She just the other day got banned from Giuliani's Facebook page because she was harassing him so much. I like her. You know, but I think that's the point, right? Is that yeah, yeah. if you go, if you decide you're going to go to therapy and you reach out and you go and it doesn't feel a connection, that's not the therapist for you. Don't go just because people say you should be going to that one. So one of the things it did in, in, in Amimeen was to get a grant and train 13 office or 13 therapists to work with law enforcement. So we went through this whole application process. Everything was free once we selected them. But, you know, why do officers do certain things? Well, they have standard operating procedures. They don't get to choose. There was this slide that was an officer picking up a shirt and it said, blank the police, I won't swear again, blank the police, tattooed across the guy's shirt. And the oh officer holding it up and the officer has a smirk on his face. And one of the therapists raised her and said, I'm completely offended. Why are they taking, why did they pick his shirt up? What are they doing? And, I, and so we were, so the officer was part of the training said, well, we have to, ta- we have to take pictures of all of the tattoos when we arrest somebody, that standard operating procedure. And do you not see the irony in this situation? <laughs> um, and that's why the officer is smirking. And so like, yeah, but, but walking, you know, when someone's going to work with men, since so many mental health providers are women, I really feel like they have to have either specialized training or a special, a different worldview. Like I said, I have four brothers coached South Dakota, then she coached Indiana University's women's basketball. I had to learn what make sorry, I had to learn what makeup was from the Clinique lady because my mother <laughs> she, I tried to paint her nails once. I swear she woke up the next morning and it all peeled off. I'm like, mom, how is this possible? <laughs> so I just think that we have to think not every therapist is the right therapist for you, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to men. And how do we train more men to become therapists? And how do we train more women to understand sort of the lived experience of being male in the culture? 
So what's something that my female leaders out there listening can really lean into and just develop or fortify if they need to lean into their men at work? Like if they have men that are their colleagues or on their team, what's something we can do to support our female leaders in approaching that work? Yeah, I think they can challenge themselves in terms of how they respond, right? So are they intentional about their word choices or are they unintentionally reinforcing sort of masculinity and notions that would make someone uh, feel like they were failing to be a man, right? Or how are, you know, like, oh, you're being too sensitive if they share a, a feeling or a thought they're having or, you know, oh, we all just, you know, need to man up about this or, you know, how are the, how are we as female leaders thinking about how we communicate with men we work with and and men who report to us in a way that honors their individuality and recognizes that they have a different worldview. I mean, we all have our own different worldview, but but gender plays a big role in that. And and so how can we as women make sure that we're giving space? Because the men who have come to me and ended up kind of dumping their buckets did so because they felt like I wasn't going to see them as less of a man if they cried in front of me. I wasn't going to see them as less of a man if they expressed vulnerability. But there are a lot of subconscious messages that are sent to men that make doing those things unsafe. So challenging ourselves to be conscious of those messages and to allow the space and the silence, because I have never experienced a dude who just launched into something the way that plenty of the women I know how are you feeling today? Well, actually, I am just so up, you know, like right away it comes out and it all just comes out. Right. And so, but men, you have to let the space be. So how are you feeling today? Okay. Okay. Well, you know, just pausing, just given time. And I, I make sure, you know, with my husband who has been a cop for 28 years, I make sure I stop because I'll be like, I'll go right into how it was my day. And I'll say, how's your day? And he doesn't say anything at first. And then I'm like, and then I'm ready to, I have like no stop. Fill in the space. Stop. Stop. <laughs> stop. Don't say anything else. Count. Yeah. Just because being yeah. silent is harder for me. So I like to start counting. And then of course it all comes, whatever, whether it's good, bad, whatever, but it, you know, it just all comes out then because I, I, I stop talking. And sometimes I love it. I, it's absolutely what I lean into. And from a strategic standpoint, right? Like from a mindset perspective, as I'm trying to prepare my leaders for this, which is just how to open up and hold space. And that really is just about presence, right? And deep, deep sense of curiosity to know and to understand, right? And then obviously the last piece, which is just like a ton of empathy, like just really just trying to get out of your experience for a second, which is how you hold space for another person's experience for them to step in that empathy is almost like that nonverbal kind of invitation. It makes it feel safe because that person obviously can feel that you care to know and want to understand. That's so true, Susan. You are, that's so articulately said. I love it because it's just something I so believe in, you know, like Rob sharing with you, like how I held space for him. I'm like, just so, such a priority that I always am reminding myself of. But like, especially when, you're new to this space, I think it helps to have those types of primers. And like a lot of what we're talking about here is just like, from a beliefs perspective, we just don't know how to think our way through some of this yeah. because it's, it's new space that we're opening up in terms of where we're asking a lot of our leaders to go with their people. Any other tips or tricks that you could give us as we're like really trying to call on our audience to want to step into the space themselves as leaders? Well, I think that from my perspective, there's really it, it to be effective, we've we've got to move to that place. We've got to be willing to create space because what we know is when we when we give room for everybody, we end up with a better product. Whatever industry you work in, you know, no salad is just lettuce, is what I always say, right? Who wants to eat just lettuce as their salad? And so yeah. how do we just say, okay. And I am one for to-do lists and getting things done and, okay, next conversation. Okay, next. But in doing that, we are not doing the best combined effort, right? And so that uh, models of collaborative governance and, you know, really working in partnership are critical. And, And especially now, you know, 
of this day, you know, in the public administration field of wicked problems, right? Meaning problems that not just one person or not just one discipline can solve. Mm -hmm. Our world is full of wicked problems that need lots of different levels of expertise from lots of different people to solve. And mm -hmm. if we don't create spaces that are truly inclusive, then we're not going to be able to solve them and we're not going to be able to address them in the way that we all want to. So I completely, you know, agree with your thing about holding space for true inclusivity. Yeah. I, I love that. And I guess I want to dig a little bit more. Like you mentioned, like the top problem for police in the U.S. is is like around their departmental, how they're treated. Like, would you say that there's a level of trust there or are they like literally not trusting their partner when they go out to answer a call? Well, I think it's complicated because that was one research study. I'm sure not all officers would say that was the thing, but that was most traumatic for them. But I think that the challenge really goes back and I'm going to sound like a historian, but you know, from 1907 in the policing world, there's been this fight between do we educate police around problem solving, critical thinking, empathy, or do we train them? And sort of that's more the indoctrination of they are sheepdog, we are sheep, they protect us from the wolves, which is more of a power over rather than working with. And there's this fight within the, the police discipline, right? And within police leaders, you have police leaders who want community policing and problem solving cops and, and want to embrace police education. And there are others who are like, nope, we are, we indoctrinate them that they do this, they do that, they, we are the best. We are, you know, and so I, I think that it is really critical we unpack that. But it's not an easy thing to unpack, but it is critical if we're going to make re real reform and if we're going to allow them to truly be humanized and address some of the significant challenges of so many officers dying by suicide. It's funny, right? Because right, right before I jumped on here, I was looking for a good quote. And <clears throat> Susan David, who's a Harvard psychologist, said, if your organization says it cares about its people, please don't refer to them as human, quote, resources, <laughs> assets, or capital, because oh the God. language is dehumanizing. And I think, I think, you know, like we're talking about like police context here, but this is very similar to any company, right? Is like, there's lots of procedures, like, like, especially from a maintenance perspective, like where I come from, it's like we have documents and procedures for everything. And it's like you you got to, you know, flip this switch before you do this. Right. And it's like it becomes more of like you're a human robot. You go out there and you shout do X, Y, Z. And I think like what we talk about on this show so much is becoming that relationship based human-centric leader like the leadership 2.0 that we we talk about is putting people first and like allowing that not the variance but allowing each person to really put their own gifts into what they do and i think that's the real like like people out there if you're listening you're like well i'm not a cop this doesn't apply to me it's like it absolutely does you just got to change your reference a little bit. Well, and I think the important thing is, you know, I, I use the, the field of law enforcement because I've worked around the criminal justice system so much. But whether it's, I mean, I've trained mental health first aid, you know, the eight-hour evidence-based curriculum to shipbuilders, to, to, you know, to a big construction company where I was at each of the safety meetings. I had 15 minutes to talk about mental health, <laughs> and, and like right in a row. So it's like John lost his minutes? thumb. I know John lost his thumb. So you got to make sure you do this. And yeah. and now there's this, this lady here. She's going to talk about mental health. And oh, my so, God. But I'm down, you know. But yeah, so yeah. I, I think no matter what industry you're in, it has its challenges, right? And so especially industries that that are more manual in nature, whether it's building ships or building houses or, or those, you know, that that thinking about how do we, why does this matter? It matters because you want employees who show up invested, happy engaged and bringing forth their best ideas. And in, in the example, you know, which we all know in the fearless organization, which is so great is, you know, talking about if you've got a doctor whose nurse doesn't feel comfortable saying, I think you have the wrong level of medication for this parent, this patient, so they don't say anything. 
and that's you or your parent or your loved one. Don't you want that nurse to be able to, to say that to I the doctor? That example. Just like if you're building a ship and you realize that something isn't right, don't you want to be able don't you want your employee to say, hey, yeah, yeah. that's missing four screws. When that goes in the water, something might happen. So, you know, yeah. we live in this liability world. So if you don't, if you think this all is too warm and fuzzy, let's just focus on it from that perspective. If you don't listen to all the voices, you won't know what you don't know, which could be hugely detrimental or devastating. And, or deadly. Or deadly, yeah. Oh, or life. deadly. So, I just... I, I, I think it's so important, like when we talk about this from a neuro-linguistic programming st uh, standpoint, which is what I have my expertise in, yeah, when you orient yourself just subconsciously with viewing that person as a human being, the language will start to orient itself, right, in accordance with that, in alignment with that, and I think that's why we believe in the education piece as much as we do, right, Rob? Like when we're doing all of this leadership development, it's not just training, we're educating because that's what we're trying to affect change on. It's like the subconscious level of how people see things, which really is obviously, you know, a result of the beliefs that they carry. Now we're talking about societal norms and cultural norms and the norms within business and all these organizations. I mean, that's the difference between the training and the educating. Right. It's like it's not just teaching them. Here's a script and asking them to read a script, because obviously from a human standpoint, that's not going to lead to meaningful change in terms of their beliefs and their values. And but the education piece does. Right. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because I moved around a lot as a kid because my parents have this philosophy. It's a little extreme. If you're not growing, you're dying. And so they started out, you know, I totally get that by the way. Yeah. So <laughs> I, have just, I have just, my father always said, if you're not growing, you're dying and find your passion and make it your job. Those that's it. And oh, those, great those leadership in your dad. Eh? Yeah, those two statements I you. think are true for all of us, right? Yeah. If we don't continue to grow, well, there's, there's not really another option other than we're not growing. So we're, I mean, dying's a little extreme, but you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, we're and, stagnating. Yeah, stagnating would be. Yeah. But you think about, you know, if you're if you're not happy with what you do, you spend as much time at work as you spend with whoever you choose to partner with in life. And so making sure that you love what you do and where you work feels good to you. Because if it doesn't feel good, that's a challenge, right? Because you're not going to bring your best forth, best self forward to somewhere that doesn't feel good for you or safe. Yeah, I talk a lot about that in my work with clients, right? Because for high achievers, especially, they can't, it, stagnation is excruciating. Yes. It's excruciating, but from a mental health perspective, right? Like if we're not growing, that's where we actually start to run into mental health issues because our brain is trying to tell us we're, we're, we're not getting something that we need here. Yeah. And that is the purpose of being a human being, right? Is evolution and growth and learning and all of this stuff that we're talking about today. And feeling valued by community, right? We are community creatures. We don't, mm -hmm. you know, exist alone. And so feeling somewhere, mm -hmm. feeling valued is really important. And so in the context of what we just laid out, it's the neurochemistry, right? It's how you're feeling emotionally that is the thing that's driving the growth, which really makes a case for creating psychologically safe organizations, yeah. don't yeah. you think? Yeah, absolutely. If you're trying to grow in the direction, whether it's a nonprofit, right? Or it's like, you know, what you're doing with the police reform or it's some of these, you know, corporations that Rob and I work with. It's all the same thing. We're here to grow. Absolutely. And to yeah. do better, right? I mean, don't we all strive to do better? And so this is, I think psychological safety is critical, to, to evolving our workplaces into more innovative, dynamic, and inclusive spaces. I love that. And, and maybe, Jenna, like to build psychological safety or, or for leaders out there who are like, hey, we want to start down this path. Like what are some of your, do you have three tips for us about how can they start to foster an environment that is psychologically safe? Well, I'm not going to sound like a commercial, but I really do think that a great place to start is by doing a scan. So I did a scan with a hospital team in Maine, who is a, a pretty dynamic group of folks. But, you know, they, that's why they were willing to do it, right? Because I, I was reaching out to lots of different entities and they were like, man, <laughs> scared. And so they did it and they 
still ended up having really, they had good scores, but they had some areas they could work on. But it was, it was a really useful tool to kind of, you know, because when I say, well, psychological safety and these are the components, well, it's like, wow, that, that's great, but it's sort of like philosophical, right? And, and so I think having a scan, doing at least my experience has been by having someone participate in a scan and be able to say, these are what the different components are. And this is where this team collectively, because I feel like that's a big challenge, right? Is that psychological safety is co-created. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is not the responsibility of one person. Mm-hmm. And that has been my challenge in running nonprofits is that, you know, when you run a nonprofit, you are HR, you are development, yeah. you, are, you know, and so, and then you're supposed to be solely creating the environment when you know staff all talk to each other and in ways that are different than they talk to you. You, I feel like making it really clear that it is a co-created dynamic. It's not about calling out, a, a, you know, the p- boss. It's about a co-created dynamic. And how do we assess that, co-create where we are with that? And how do we make some plans, you know, some action steps to move ourselves forward in whichever area a specific workplace chooses? But I feel like talking to leaders that it, it is about a co-created assessment that allows you to move forward I know that my experience, which has been wonderful at some nonprofits and super challenging at other, someone had come to me and said, so how do you feel about the culture? And I said, I know there's some challenge, but I don't know what it is and I can't figure it out and nobody's telling me. And they they said, well, we have this scan and we can tell you. I would have been like, sign me up. It's a very empowering invitation, right? When you say it that way, this is co-collaborative, co-creative. It's like, okay, we're all responsible for this. Yes. So therefore, we can all be responsible. We all have a hand in that. I think even that is an entry point into psych safety. I agree. I agree. And I think it's less scary when you say to a leader it that way, then they think that they're going to just be assessed. It's going to be some assessment about by their staff about how nice they are, right? Mm-hmm. Instead mm-hmm. of you know the true depth of what it really is. And I, I talk, really yeah. I talk about it to my leaders, like just taking the temperature. Yeah. Just putting your finger on the pulse, right, and just seeing where everybody's at, right. Which, as we're saying today, or suggesting today, is just the entry point into being able to help it move in the direction of where it is you're trying to take it. Yeah. 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 And and and. And making things more productive, dynamic, effective. I think that so often when we talk about mental health stuff, which is, you know, that's the space I've spent most of my career in in one way or another, you know, connected to justice. People think all of a sudden that means not being accountable Mm -hmm. or not being high performing. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think that psychological safety increases high performance and increases accountability. I am a big mm-hmm. fan of results-based accountability as a governance model, which is really naming an outcome and measuring the steps you take towards that outcome and really being Love really it. specific with that. And I think that psychological safety helps increase that 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 shared accountability for outcomes. And I think that's not what people think when they, you say creating a psychologically safe work environment. They think like, I don't know, Cupcakes and and rainbows and sunshine and unicorns. Yeah. What what is is it? Amy Edmondson who has the quote about high fear, low trust environments, right? Equal low performing teams and high trust, low fear environments lead to high the highest performing teams on the planet. That's what the research supports, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have to just say, I uh, found that book and I was so moved by it. So I started reading her bio and it turns out that she worked for the same person my parents worked for, for a bunch of years back in the eighties, which was really cool to see. (laughs) It's just a small world. So you were meant to do this work. I, I, I do believe that. I believe we are called and I think we are all called to something and it depends on whether we listen or not to ourselves to find that something. Yeah. So talking about calling, what is your calling and what do you want your legacy to be? You know, my call, unfortunately, my calling is often to give voice to that which others don't give to. So to be focused on uh, police reform from the perspective of officers' mental health is not exactly the most popular way to be focused on police reform right now, right? And so just like I have fought very hard against the criminalization of mental illness, even when, phone, you know, especially when someone's been found not criminally responsible. So they committed a violent, at times, you know, very 
murder event, but a judge has said they were not in their right mind and they belong in a hospital, not a, not a correctional setting. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of issues, whether it's thinking about officers' mental health as a way to, for police reform or fighting the criminalization, which our nation does so often, the criminalization of mental illness, those are not, they are not small children and ponies in terms of the issues that people like to talk about. So I feel like I am called to, to advocate with populations that either don't feel comfortable in the, in the world of law enforcement. They're not going to all say, yes, our mental health is really struggling. So could you think about us for a minute, mm-hmm. you know, or the fact that folks who are, are very mentally ill are put in jails and prisons across the country, they have no voice. And so mm-hmm. I think that's my, my sort of my calling taking that further is, is training is the helping people to become aware of those things. I love trainings. I love to work with all leaders, whether it's business leaders or, or mental health folks or teachers, or I just like to help people find knowledge that they haven't been exposed to that can improve their worldview and, and performance. And I would say my, I think your other part of that question was sort of what is my legacy Mm-hmm. And I always say this when anyone asks me, what do I feel like my greatest accomplishment or my legacy is? I worked in child welfare and there was a young woman who had a long family line of physical and sexual abuse of the girls. And I took her into custody. I promised her I would be in her life any way she needed me to. And this was about 25 years ago. And she is an amazing mother of two and a foster parent. And so my legacy to me is about the, the ways that I touched individuals' lives who then changed their life and the lives of those they love. I, you know, I've written and advocated as a, as a lobbyist of different nonprofit organizations for tons of legislation. Can't call yourself a social worker in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania without social work degree, thanks to my many times fighting and getting lots of yelled at. But those are all nice. Those are laws. Those are great. They help people. But the way that we impact people's lives directly, person to person, the change we can make that I was only her worker for a year before I left to go work for Giuliani. But that year, she, I mean, I don't say this, she says to me, that year is the year that that made change the trajectory of her life from repeating her mother's patterns. So to me, that's the legacy I want. The legacy I want is that I, I wasn't Miss All Fancy and stuff, but that what I did was that I, I touched people's lives and ways that made profound differences for them and those that they love. What do you think about that legacy, Rob? I'm getting fired up over here. I love I know, me too. (laughs) What do you do? We're so aligned, Jenna. Honestly, this is why we started this show when we started it, right? Is like, we just felt called. We had to, because we knew like what we were up against when we went into this pandemic, like, especially from a leadership perspective, and so that's what it's really about, changing the way the game of business is being played forever, right? In the context of leadership 2.0 and how that, you know, heart-centric, people-centric, relationship-centric leadership has the power to really just change the experiences of those people that we're working with every single day. Because you're right, we spend as much time with them as we do with our families. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and of course, that ripple effect that cascades out into the world in terms of whatever it is our business is contributing to the world, it's felt there too. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too often people don't realize that by doing this work, you know, the thing they're staring at, their profit and loss statement or whatever, their inventory, whatever they're thinking is success. Mm-hmm. Uh, by doing this work, that is is dynamically improved, but so is so are real people's lives. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get a, a win-win. I was mm-hmm. this is my parents' mm-hmm. old license plate, right? Ah, I love it. It says win-win for <laughs> sitting next folks to me. Out there. I just thought yeah. it fit there. So, win-win. You know, you know, so we're we're winning because companies it. are more successful, and we're winning totally. because people are happier, living more fulfilled lives. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the call that we're hearing too. Right? Is like leadership 2.0 is a win-win strategy. So. Thank you so much, Jen. Oh my gosh, I'm so full. I'm so inspired. This is really going to help to amplify my ripple effect. How about you, Rob? <laughs> this was awesome. Jenna, if anyone out there wants to connect with you and find out more about you, where can they find you? 
So I, uh, well, obviously on LinkedIn, but I, and I have a website that's just Jenna Maynard, but either of those places I am happily contacted. Perfect. Yeah. And we'll drop Jenna's website and LinkedIn in the podcast notes. So if you want to find her, go there. Obviously for us, we are rolling out a bunch of new stuff shortly on. Oh yeah. On our website. So check out elitehighperformance.com. And then also, I mean, obviously if you've liked this interview, head over, hit subscribe wherever you're listening to the Leadership Launchpad Project and share it with some of your favorite leaders, your friends, your colleagues in your life. Susan, is there anything you want to leave us with today? Yeah. How's that ripple effect looking now, leaders? I hope this is inspiring our tribe of listeners as much as it's firing us up over here on the mics because that's what it's all about. It's about that impact game, right? And that's what this show is all about, inspiring our leaders to play their biggest impact game so that they can have that, that type of legacy too, right? So yeah, please share this with your tribe, share this with your folks, share this with your friends, help us spread that ripple effect as far and wide as we possibly can. It's time that we level up our leadership strategies in this way. That's the call. (laughs) I love it. And for me, it's funny, right? Like we talk about psych safety and and Jenna mentioned it, right? Is a lot of people think it's this rainbows and sunshine and it's about, you know, happiness and being nice. And it's actually literally a thing that they talk about is – is basically the absence of truth. And it's not about just being nice. It's about the truth, right? And we need, and psychological safety is the ability for people to speak up. If something's not working, if something's broken, if something's going out the door that's not good, Mm -hmm. if something needs to be improved, Right. And it's like all the research stacks it like Google, Aristotle, Amy Edmondson, like these people, they've done the research. This is the way for you to build the best product service thing that you're building. Mm -hmm. And if you're misconstruing what it is, go out and do some research for yourself. But this is the way forward. And it starts with us showing up as our human self. And we got to do the work on ourselves before we can bring it to others. And we talk about that a lot. But that's where I want people to be with today is this is the way forward, not the way back. Jenna, thanks for joining us today. This was this was a great interview. Yeah, I'm really glad you guys invited me to join you. So thank you. Thank Thank you you for helping us spread that ripple effect. That's right. Spread that ripple effect. (laughs) Everybody listening, we really appreciate you listening. And we'll see you all next week. Bye, everyone.